Hey, everyone, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Today is Dr. Anne Pidier. I met her at the Seattle Veg Fest, where she gave an amazing lecture on plant-based diet and cancer, and she should know because she is a radiation oncologist. She's also plant-based herself. Please welcome her to the show. I'm so happy that you're able to give this presentation to our audience because it was such a wonderful presentation, and more people were interested in the junk food downstairs than listening to the doctors (laughs) upstairs. (laughs) Well, it was hard to uh, compete with all of the wonderful chefs such as yourself at the show. I am so honored to be here. Thank you so much for inviting inviting me on to talk today. Well, thank you. I can't wait to hear your presentation. Wonderful. I'll get started. So I, um, I have been talking to my patients about going plant-based for over a decade. And the reason for that is because on a plant-based diet, you can reduce your risk of recurrence. You can prevent new cancers. And ideally after a diagnosis of cancer, I'm really hoping I can have my patients leave our care healthier um, after their diagnosis than they were even before. Um, so what happened when I, um, first came out into practice was I was, because I was the only woman in my practice, I was handed all of breast cancer. And despite my training, I hadn't had a lot of information on nutrition, but I all of a sudden had a lot of very sophisticated, Uh, women asking me questions about what else they could do to help reduce the risk of their cancer coming back. And um, so what I did is what we're trained to do, which is to go to the literature and um, figure out, you know, what the evidence is that's out there in order to give our patients, you know, the the best information possible. And I was surprised to learn um, that the information out there is crystal clear. And so once I started learning about uh, the nutrition and how it applies to cancer as well as other diseases, I started integrating it uh, myself for my family and then really um, talked to all of my patients about about going plant-based, which wasn't always interestingly well-received in the community but it's uh, becoming much more mainstream now. So my, my discussions are much easier. So today I'm gonna to talk about plant-based diet and cancer prevention and prevention of recurrence. So just to start with, um, I'd like to define what a whole food plant-based diet is. I feel like the media has been altering this definition. Um, When I'm talking about it, I am really talking about a dietary pattern that omits animal-derived foods and is really prioritizing nutrient-dense, minimally processed foods like fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds. So I describe it as a very healthy vegan diet. And doctors are promoting plant-based diets because it has been shown to reverse and prevent heart disease lower the risk and reverse diabetes. It helps people maintain a healthy weight, live a longer life without disease, and of course, lower the risk of cancer and even slow the progression of cancer. So in 2021, the um, CDC came out with the leading causes of premature death in this country. They haven't updated it for 2022 yet. But if you look at this list, with the exception of unintentional injuries, every single disease process 
on this list is linked to nutrition. So conservatively, we can reduce heart disease by 50%, cancer by 40%. Even if you have COVID, if you are plant-based, they found that you can reduce moderate to severe COVID uh, symptoms by 70%. Stroke um, is essentially an extension of heart disease and can be lowered with plant-based diet. Just like with COVID, other chronic lower respiratory diseases that oftentimes can be associated with infection can um, be uh, mitigated with disease. Alzheimer's, well associated with nutrition, but also interestingly, 80% of people with Alzheimer's have diabetes and diabetes can be reduced type two diabetes by about 70% by being on a whole food plant-based diet. Um, Non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is the leading cause of cirrhosis and is causing a lot of cancers in the liver in this country. And that too is reversed with a whole food plant-based diet. In kidney disease, the two biggest risk factors are hypertension and diabetes, both of which are reduced with a whole food plant-based diet. So when we look at the leading causes of disease in this country, and we really want to be focusing on what we have control over. We don't have control over everything, but we have, a, we have control over everything we put in our mouths. So when we step back and we just start with looking at the steps of cancer development, you know, we have a normal cell that can be injured. And if, um, if there are enough injuries to the DNA and the cell does not repair it, then the cells can um, be altered and they can gain function or they can lose function. So they can lose the function to die off at an appropriate time. They can lose the function to recognize their boundaries and stop growing, um, or they can gain function. They can learn how to invade outside of um, the area that they grew in and they can metastasize. So my, my patients are actually always a little bit surprised when they come into my office because we check the majority of our breast cancer patients for um, any links to genetics associated with cancer, so the BRCA mutation. And um, most of our patients don't have this, so they are very curious to why they developed cancer to begin with. And, and Actually, 90% of cancer is not associated with genetics, but doctors ask a lot of questions about genetics. And so I think people are getting this confused, but the um, majority of cancer is associated with lifestyle and environment. And currently, uh, diet has now outpaced tobacco as the leading cause of cancer. So recent estimates are up to 35% of all cancers are associated with dietary choices. But if we are to really break this down, certain cancers are even more associated with dietary choices. 70% of colorectal and prostate cancer, 50% of breast, uterine, pancreatic, and gallbladder cancer, and even 20% of lung, bladder, mouth and esophageal cancer. So tobacco still causes about 30% of cancers, which is definitely modifiable. Obesity causes about 20% of cancers. So um, the most common cancer we think of that's obesity associated is uterine cancer, but I'm gonna be talking about 13 cancers that are directly linked to obesity. Infections can cause cancer, and this can surprise a lot of people. So we vaccinate for HPV, 
now, at least in, in our younger population. And that's with the hope to prevent cervical cancer, but also head and neck cancer and anal cancer. Hepatitis can cause liver cancer, and there's a whole host of infections that can lead to various cancers. So upwards of 20% of cancers are now associated with infection. Alcohol, four to 6%, but alcohol can also increase, um, add to sort of the, um, the damage that can lead to DNA. So we associate alcohol, not just with, um, you know, the head and neck cancers, but also um, with breast cancer. We've all heard of uh, skin cancer associated with sun exposure and environmental pollutants. And that's becoming a bigger issue. And that is also associated with nutrition. And I'll be talking about that today too. So a lot of the major uh, health groups out there are asking doctors to talk to patients about an overhaul of their lifestyle. And um, that's because a disease from sort of environment and lifestyle factors has really started to overwhelm the medical community. And the problem with this is that most people actually already really think they're healthy. Uh, all of the patients that, almost all of my patients come in thinking that, that they're leading a very healthy lifestyle. And in fact, 75% of Americans believe they're healthy. So if we're to define a healthy lifestyle as four criteria, so we break this down into minimal amount of exercise, which is 30 minutes, five days a week, healthy eating. And when, when they defined healthy eating, they simply defined it as getting five servings of fruit and vegetables a day, normal weight, and not smoking. So the reality is that 90% um, of people in this country are not even eating even the minimal amount of fruits and vegetables a day. Less than 1% of our uh, teenagers in this country are eating the recommended um, five servings of fruit and vegetables. 70% of uh, adults now are overweight with 40% uh, in the category of obesity. 19% of people are using tobacco products. Now 11% of people are using cigarettes and the remainder are either chewing, vaping, or juuling. And oftentimes people who are utilizing these other products don't recognize that they still can lead to cancer and other uh, problems. And 75% of Americans don't routinely meet the exercise uh, criteria. So when, when we put this all together, less than 3% of Americans are actually leading a healthy lifestyle. And if we were to have added in uh, consumption of excess sugar, we would have dropped that number to less than 1%. And so this is why the ma major health organizations are really asking doctors to uh, start addressing this with patients. So with those numbers, it shouldn't be too surprising that one in two men and one in three women will develop cancer in their lifetime. So about 40% of Americans will be diagnosed with cancer and we are expecting this number to continue to rise. And I'm talking about a whole food plant-based diet, uh, one that really emphasizes fruits and vegetables and legumes, but specifically is omitting animal products. And I think it's important to hear that this link to animal products and cancer is not new. So we've known for 130 years when Scientific American, the most prestigious science journal of its time came out on its front page and said, 
Cancer is most frequent among those branches of the human race where carnivorous habits prevail. And this was based on a lot of evidence that was gathered prior to 1892. This information has only gained in strength. And the Surgeon General in 1988 came out and said, well, if you compare the populations, um, a comparison of populations indicates that death rates for cancers of the breast, colon, and prostate are directly proportional to estimated uh, dietary fat intakes. And the fat intake that they were talking about at the time was all from animal products. We also have migration studies that show shifts in cancer incidence. So you can take people from, let's say, Okinawa, Japan, where historically the cancer risk was very low, you bring them over here and they take on our lifestyle and they get just as much cancer as, as um, the average American. So we can see that um, the environment and um, lifestyle is very much affecting uh, cancer development. So dietary patterns definitely impact cancer. A whole food plant-based diet is one that's really promoting a lot of vegetables, fruits, legumes, grains, nuts, and it's bringing in a lot of fiber. Fiber has been found to really help reduce hormones in our body. So for women, we're constantly trying to get rid of estrogen through our, um, through our intestines and the fiber grabs onto that estrogen and pulls it out. Um, interestingly, they have now correlated um, breast cancer with constipation. So women who are constipated get more breast cancer and they think in part, this is uh, because uh, the slower transit time is allowing uh, uptake of hormones that the body was trying to excrete. We also know that high fiber diet is going to inhibit the absorption of cancer causing chemicals. So high fiber diets actually help bring water into the intestine this can dilute out some of the carcinogens that are coming in. So think of pesticides. And then a faster transit time is helping bring it out faster before those are absorbed. And when we specifically look at animal products, and that includes dairy and eggs, uh, there are multiple reasons that eliminating this is associated with reduced cancer. So I'm gonna be talking a lot about IGF-1, so insulin-like growth factor one. Now that's a hormone our body makes and it is fuel to the cancer um, when it's produced. And so we can reduce this with what we eat and how we exercise. Um, and, I, and I will be going back into that. Also, animal products reduce uh, cholesterol. Um, you only get animal, um, you only get dietary cholesterol from animal products. So when you're eliminating the animal products, you're not bringing in any unnecessary dietary cholesterol. And when we eliminate animal, animal products, we reduce saturated fat. So the two leading sources of saturated fat in the American diet is chicken and cheese. And when I talk to my patients, I, I start with that, that the worst foods for their cancer would be chicken and cheese. And, um, and I'll be talking about why that is. There's lots of reasons for that. Um, also, when we eliminate animal products, this has been found to optimize healthy weight. My patients who do adopt a whole food plant-based diet will typically come back having lost 15 to 20 pounds without, without trying. It's considered the most anti-inflammatory uh, dietary pattern. So we want to reduce inflammation in the body. Inflammation can, can impact our immune system and it can also lead to damage of cells. So we want to limit 
any anything that's causing our body to react that way. Also eliminating uh, animal products minimizes intake of hormones. So uh, dairy, for example, brings in about 60% of dietary estrogen. So women who have breast cancer, which is oftentimes driven by estrogen, really need to be avoiding the dairy. Um, so that's why I'd say cheese is probably one of the, of the worst foods. It's concentrated dairy, um, especially for my breast cancer patients. So um, it's going to be bringing in quite a bit. And you can eat a lot of cheese without knowing how many servings you're getting. And that adds up pretty quickly. But also all animals, just in order to live, are producing their own hormones. And so when you're eating uh, animal-based products, you're eating their natural hormones, not just the hormones that might be injected, but, but their natural hormones. So when we, we've also found that eliminating the animal products reduces and reverses uh, diabetes, which is associated with cancer, and heart disease, which is, um, you know, what's competing with cancer for premature death in this country in terms of leading causes. So our goal is to really reduce cancer development and even slow the progression by adopting a pattern which has been shown to do this. So we always like to start with epidemiologic studies, large studies that bring together lots of people so that we can understand uh, true patterns. Um, we have the Adventist Health Study and um, the Seventh-day Adventists are a group of people in this country who, as part of their religion, take health very seriously. And they're also very generous with their health information. They've allowed the medical community to follow them. And so we have a study that looked at 69,000 participants tracked over four years. And when you look at um, the dietary patterns within the Seventh-day Adventist uh, population, you have meat eaters, vegetarians, and vegans. And so what they've done is they compared their vegetarians and vegans to their meat eaters. And I, um, when I think of the meat eaters in, the, um, in these studies, I think more of like a flexitarian rather than the standard American diet meat eater. So um, because typically they're, even their meat eaters are eating less meat than the typical standard American. So when we look at these numbers, I would say that they're probably much higher than this, but when they compared their vegetarians, to their meat eaters, they found a 24% lower risk of GI cancers. So think of colorectal cancers, one of the most common cancers in this country. And vegan women had the most benefit, a 34% reduced risk for breast, ovarian and uterine cancer compared to the non-vegetarians. So female organs are very sensitive to what, um, to nutrients. So in this, and this sort of demonstrates that. Now, after this study came out, the Europeans wanted to reproduce it and they did the um, Epic Oxford study. And this was a, a prospective investigation of cancer in the United Kingdom. And they did the same thing. They looked at their meat eaters, vegetarians, and compared, um, compared them in terms of cancer and found that there was a significant drop in um, cancer risk amongst, amongst the vegetarians. They had, to, um, they had to combine the vegans with the vegetarians because they didn't see any cancers in that vegan group. Now the NIH in this study or in this country um, knew about this uh, hormone IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor one, uh, mostly because there's a congenital deficiency where people don't produce IGF-1, and interestingly, they don't develop cancer or diabetes. So scientists um, 
were very interested in this and they wanted to look at um, you know, whether or not we can uh, see a difference in cancer or diabetes in people who produce IGF-1 uh, based on how we get our protein sources. So what they did was they looked at 46,000 people and they controlled for weight and also other nutrients like fat and carbohydrates. So when I say controlled, what that means is these um, factors didn't impact um, the outcome of the study. And what they found was that the people who got their protein from animal sources had a fourfold increased risk of dying from cancer. And they also had a fourfold increased risk of dying from diabetes. So that's significant because they didn't see that same um, statistic with people who had a high protein diet from plant sources. So this demonstrated that uh, animal proteins increase IGF-1 and directly impacts cancer. They were able to quantify that for every 10 point increase in IGF-1, that um, there was an increased mortality from cancer by 9%, so um, very specific. And when we look at all of this information, we can see that the mortality risk, the risk of dying from meat and dairy is really comparable to smoking. So the World Health Organization came out in 2015 and um, announced um, that based uh, on over 800 studies that red and processed meat are carcinogens. Now they, broke, they initially broke this up into red and uh, I'm sorry, group one and group two carcinogens. But I was at a, um, a meeting, a medical meeting where the epidemiologists who were associated with this said, had they even waited two weeks, they could have published that the red meat was a group one carcinogen. So I think we really need to look at red and processed meat as the same uh, group of carcinogens. And that's really in the same category as breathing asbestos. Um, they were able to quantify that one serving of meat a day increased risk of cancer by 18%. And then they tried to um, discuss why they think the processed meats are really causing this. And they, they um, really focused in on nitrosamines. So nitrosamines cause DNA damage. And again, like we spoke about earlier, if that DNA damage isn't corrected, you can go on and develop cancer. So the companies are in tune with the fact that most, most Americans really wanna be healthy. I mean, if we have 75% of people in this country thinking they're healthy, I think that's good news. It really means that, that people are trying to do the right thing. And so the companies came out and said, well, we will have a nitrate free uh, processed meat so that you don't have to worry about these nitrosamines. And unfortunately it reacts similarly. So uh, there's no free lunch there. Now, red meat is directly associated with colorectal cancer, pancreatic cancer, breast and prostate cancer. And again, it's thought that it's the nitrosamines, but also heme iron. So heme iron is iron that comes from blood uh, that you get from animal products. And this can cause um, free radicals and oxidative damage that can lead to cancer. Also, um, animal products can bring in a lot of toxins that get into the food chain. Dioxins, for example, are probably one of the most feared um, carcinogens known. Um, it's uh, one of these persistent organic pollutants, a forever chemical that we're all hearing about in the media. 
And this gets into our food chain and uh, people get the majority of these chemicals uh, eating animal products. Also, when you heat up animal protein, you get heterocyclic amines and polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, which are known carcinogens, so cancer-causing chemicals. So the International um, Agency for Research in Cancer has come out and said that there's no safe level of meat consumption that exists. So unfortunately, there's been a dramatic increase in cancer among younger adults, and the NCI has been tracking this um, and found that since the 50s, colon cancer incidence has doubled and rectal cancer incidence has quadrupled. And it's well known that this is due to low fiber diets, high consumption of processed and red meats, lack of physical activity and obesity. And if you really look at what's happened since the 1950s, because um, I have a lot of patients who, when I tell them, you know, you really want to be omitting the animal products in your diet, the very first thing they say is, well, boy, you know, my grandparents lived to 95 and they had um, a lot of meat and dairy in their, in their diet, you know. Why, why are things different now? And if you really look at it, if you go back to the 1950s, we weren't, we weren't eating anywhere near the amount of animal products that we're eating now. I mean, there's a whole host of differences, you know, between what their grandparents grew up with in terms of physical activity and body mass index, as well as processed foods, but never in history have we been eating this much meat and dairy. And as a result, you can see in the graph next to this that uh, since, since the 50s and the 60s, um, obesity rates uh, have similarly increased dramatically. So it's no surprise that we're seeing a lot more early onset cancers. Um, typically, historically, um, we, cancer development was seen in people in their mid-60s. And now we're seeing more and more, a lot of cancers diagnosed in patients under the age of 50. I've had uh, colorectal patients in their 20s. Um, I have a significant amount of my breast cancer patients are in their 40s. Um, I actually have a patient right now who has metastatic kidney cancer in his 30s. And we believe that uh, this change in developing cancer even earlier is due to dietary factors and obesity, those two being the largest contributors. There was some good news um, that bladder, throat, and lung cancer um, are decreasing, and this is correlated with less tobacco use. But unfortunately, we're seeing a lot more juuling and vaping in young kids. And so we're worried that the trend is going to reverse and that we're going to start seeing those cancers again, too, and maybe even at a younger, a younger age as well. So clearly animal products promote cancer, but, but why is always the question. And the nitrosamines um, are part of this because um, it can directly damage DNA, heme iron, so iron associated uh, with the animal products, so iron that you get from blood versus plant-based products. So you can get non-heme iron, which doesn't cause the free radical reaction. And uh, from you get, you get non-heme iron from leafy greens and beans, tofu, all sorts of um, sources. But also 
animal products cause um, carcinogens to be uh, produced when the uh, animal protein is heated up. So you get polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and heterocyclic amines, which are known carcinogens. And then uh, the pollutants that accumulate in the fatty tissues of animals like dioxins. Also, animal products are the only source of dietary cholesterol. And I think that's important to hear, and I'll be talking about it um, a little bit more. A lot of people don't really, really understand that. I think we've all been hearing since we were children that you want to eat a diet as low in cholesterol as possible. And that's been code word that, that the scientific community has been using to say, go plant-based. I mean, um, but I don't think most people understand that because they, I think that they confuse cholesterol as just maybe fat, but dietary cholesterol is only from animal products. You may get a little saturated fat from avocados or almonds, but you never get any cholesterol from those products. And cholesterol facilitates cancer growth. So uh, what they've been saying since the 70s and 80s about having a diet as low in cholesterol as possible remains true today. Also, um, animal products uh, increase insulin-like growth factor one, IGF-1. It promotes cancer development. It causes cancers to grow and it helps cancers learn how to spread around the body. And when we look at cholesterol, um, you can look at it in, in one of two ways. You can look at it with people who have high cholesterol or people who, uh, which oftentimes and almost always is associated with diet. Um, but also just people who are bringing cholesterol in. So one of the largest studies done um, in South Korea, they actually evaluated 1.2 million people and they observed, observed them for 14 years until they either got a cancer diagnosis or they died and they were able to control for many factors. So these factors didn't impact the outcome of the study. Uh, smoking, alcohol, body mass index, exercise, high blood pressure, and diabetes. And what they found was that if, if a person had a higher cholesterol around 239, there was a positive association with breast cancer, prostate cancer, and colon cancer. And the total cholesterol of 230 isn't far off from the average cholesterol in this country. They um, did another study up in Canada just looking at people who consume cholesterol. So code word for people who are eating a lot of uh, meat and dairy, think of people in this country on the keto diet, for example. And they demonstrated similar findings. Um, and in fact, noted that women who consumed the most cholesterol increased their risk of breast cancer by 48%. But they noted that there was an increase in lung, stomach, colon, rectal, and pancreatic cancer. And cholesterol um, is well known to be associated with cancer. So for every 10 point increase in cholesterol, my patients have a 9% increase in, in cancer recurrence. So very important to try and get people to take cholesterol out of their diet. And we know that levels are high in cancer cells and that cholesterol impacts the membrane of cancer cells. So it can help facilitate survival and growth. And when cancer cells divide, they double their requirement for cholesterol. But also when cholesterol is in a cell, it can be broken down into metabolites or chemicals that can um, act as 
um, growth factors such as estrogen. So we have, for example, um, here, a metabolite of cholesterol called 27-HC, and this acts like a super estrogen. Uh, so, so for my breast cancer patients, their breast cancer is facilitated by estrogen. I mean, this acts as a stronger estrogen than their body makes. And, you know, we try and give um, women medication to reduce their body making estrogen. Um, and, um, and then, you know, if they're not changing their diet, they're just bringing that estrogen in and allowing their body to utilize the cholesterol <clears throat> to make the estrogen. So this has been found to um, facilitate tumor growth and metastasis. And it's not just breast cancer. I mean, we see this with uterine cancer, ovarian cancer. So again, dietary cholesterol only comes from animal products. And most of my patients will say, gosh, I've already made such huge changes. Um, I've already switched from red meat to white meat. And that's great news because what that means is they, they wanna make a change. Um, they have the discipline to make a change and um, they just need a little bit extra guidance on this. So um, when I tell them chicken and cheese are the worst foods, the reason they're eating poultry is because they heard on the news that it's a leaner, a leaner meat and that you should be consuming lean meats. Now, if you look at cholesterol content and you look at the leanest red meat per 100 grams, that's 88 milligrams of dietary cholesterol. Chicken without skin, so think of your breast, uh, chicken breast, it's 85 milligrams. So 88 versus 85 milligrams, there's really no difference there. And um, then you go down and you look at eggs, and the same amount of eggs is 373 milligrams of dietary cholesterol. So, um, so with that, you, you know, you really look at that um, and you think to yourself, well, you know, we want to eat as low a cholesterol diet as possible. The um, red meat is no different than white meat and eggs are probably the worst when it comes to dietary cholesterol. We know dietary cholesterol. Oh, sorry, I'm going to silence this if I can. Um, very much associated with, um, with getting cancer, you know, um, I apologize for that. Um, we really want to be talking to patients about getting these, these foods out and it, out of their diet, despite the fact that the media keeps telling them that, you know, eggs are an excellent source of, um, healthy protein that they should be, they should be eating. So it's a real surprise for most of my patients to hear, to hear any of this. So when you look at cholesterol and you look at dietary patterns, you can see that the standard American tends to have the highest total cholesterol and um, the most dangerous LDL uh, cholesterol. And with each group that's taking animal products out, you can see that there is a drop in uh, total cholesterol and LDL. So, Insulin-like growth factor one is very well known um, in the cancer community for being um, fuel to the fire of cancer. Um, it's in general, a very important growth um, mediator of growth when you're a kid. So you're supposed to have IGF-1, that's why we produce it. And what happens is uh, when you become an adolescent, uh, your brain sends out 
growth factors to stimulate IGF-1, and this is important for um, growth and development. But like I said before, we have been able to find people who don't have IGF-1, uh, Laren syndrome, which is a congenital deficiency, and they don't ever develop type 2 diabetes or cancer. So that's what alerted the medical community to this being an important aspect of um, cancer development uh, and recurrence. So when we, when we look at IGF-1, we know that high circulating levels are cor correlated with a poor prognosis and mortality. And this is true for breast cancer, prostate, lung, and colorectal cancers. And that's because IGF-1 has been found to help cancer grow, um, proliferate. It even helps blood vessels grow into the tumor so that it can bring the nutrients that the, the cancer wants right to it. It helps, um, it helps cancer cells learn how to become invasive and spread around the body, which is called metastasis. And once you have metastatic cancer, we don't consider that, that you know, curable. Um, and unfortunately, IGF-1 also leads to the resistance of chemotherapy. So patients who happen to be on chemotherapy, oftentimes they're told by the, um, the nurses over in the, the chemo wards to eat a very high protein diet. And I don't think that they're stressing that it needs to be plant-based. So, you know, they're eating, they're doing what they're being told. They're eating tons of extra typically animal-based proteins, because that's where their mind directly goes when it comes to protein. And we have evidence that that actually impairs the uh, medications that we're giving them from working. Uh, but fortunately, IGF-1 is modifiable. Now, the pharmaceutical companies have been looking for a way to modify IGF-1 for cancer patients. And they haven't been able to find that yet, but they have been spending a lot of money doing that. Um, unfortunately, everything they've come up with is too toxic, but you can easily modify IGF-1. So if you wanna increase IGF-1 and facilitate cancer growth and recurrence, then you wanna eat animal-based proteins. Um, so chicken, fish, red meat, uh, milk, cheese, but also highly refined carbohydrates. So most of my patients have heard that sugar is what they need to be avoiding um, when they have cancer. And um, unfortunately, a lot of times they'll come in and they'll tell me that they've stopped eating all of their fruit because that's very high in sugar and they don't want to give that sugar to their cancer. So, um, so again, this is good news. They're, they're willing to modify, they just didn't know that it's actually the highly refined carbohydrates, so highly refined grains. So I think of things like Eggo waffles or Pop-Tarts, um, those kind of foods that will um, increase IGF-1. So Oreo cookies, they're just as bad as meat in terms of increasing IGF-1. If we wanna reduce IGF-1, reduce the um, likelihood of getting cancer and um, the likelihood of recurrence of cancer, then you simply eliminate the animal products and you specifically eat a lot more vegetables. So, um, you know, the breast cancer fighting vegetables would be the cruciferous vegetables, broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, asparagus, Brussels sprouts. You wanna bring in lots of legumes, these very high in fiber, probably the most nutrient dense food you can eat. And then specifically foods high in beta carotene. The foods that have, um, you know, the orange 
tint to them like carrots, squash, uh, sweet potatoes, those independently help um, reduce IGF-1. And then exercise. So almost all doctors talk to patients about exercise without any um, argument. And, um, um, and that's because we know that it, it reduces IGF-1. Now, um, you can see in this bar graph that the uh, standard American is gonna have the highest levels of IGF-1 after puberty. And if you're an elite athlete, like a distance marathon runner, you can drop that IGF-1, um, even eating animal products. But vegans who don't exercise have the lowest levels of IGF-1. So you can imagine combining uh, a plant-based diet and exercise and what that does to reduce your risk of cancer coming back, but also reduce your risk of getting cancer to begin with. So um, I have a special mention here on seafood and poultry, and that's because most of my patients are, are simply shocked to hear me say, no, I would not recommend eating um, fish or chicken. And that's because both will increase IGF-1, uh, which you know is fuel to uh, the cancer. Both bring in dietary cholesterol, which cancer cells require to grow. Um, both bring in heme iron iron associated with blood, which produces um, free radicals and um, causes DNA damage. Also, when you heat up um, seafood and poultry, you're making the heterocyclic amines, the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, and nobody eats poultry rare. So you actually cook poultry even more. So you actually even get more of these chemicals um, when um, when you're uh, cooking poultry in particular. And then of course there's dioxins. So dioxins are one of the most feared um, carcinogens uh, that comes from um, our environment. So all of the pollution in our environment leads to um, you know, these chemicals being released into the atmosphere. And it can be from you know, forest fires, uh, volcanoes, byproducts from paper, pesticides, steel, the thermal power plants, uh, burning plastics and um, waste. And what happens is this all just gets deposited into the environment, into the water absorbed by soil and plants. And um, we all eat these if we're eating the plants, but you're not really getting the super high concentration of it unless you're eating the animals. Because let's take fish, for example. Um, the fish are living in a very toxic environment and every day it, it is eating food from this environment and these chemicals are being deposited in the fat. And these are forever chemicals, so they stay in the fat forever. And as this animal's growing, it continues to eat these chemicals. It continues to store these chemicals in the fat. And so you can imagine over the lifetime of the animal, you are getting very high concentrations of not just mercury and lead, which everyone thinks about, but PCBs, DDT, and dioxins. And I think that it's instructional to think of the fact that, you know, our government really only tells one group of people sort of a dead obvious. They tell pregnant women, don't smoke and don't drink. Oh, and don't eat seafood and processed meats now. So they've added that. So um, if they are telling pregnant women not to do this because these chemicals are causing you know, 
brain damage to their babies or other health concerns, you know, we should really be con considering what it's doing to our bodies as well. So um, obesity rates are increasing. We have had lots of public health initiatives to try and curb this, um, and they haven't been working. Um, we are currently have about 40% of our population um, having obesity, and this is expected to increase to 58% by 2035. So we're not seeing any slowdown in this trend. Um, and um, the, the healthcare community right now is actually trying to get away from the term body mass index. It's what we've been using for many years to try and sort out normal weight, overweight, and um, obese, and then levels of obesity. And they're trying to get rid of it for a number of reasons. But interestingly, um, when they look at body mass index, they're now saying it's grossly underestimating obesity. So we know that obesity comes from food intake. Certain foods are much more likely to lead to weight gain, um, inactivity. Medications can slow down the metabolism and can um, encourage people, if you will, to um, gain weight. <clears throat> Poor sleep is correlated with weight gain and stress. And in this country, we definitely are sleep deprived and we definitely have a lot of stress. So all of these causes are leading to this, epi this epidemic. And that's what they're calling this is an epidemic. So uh, being overweight and obese is linked to 13 forms of cancer. And this is based on 200 meta-analyses. <clears throat> One meta-analysis is um, a group of studies, well-done studies brought together so we can get large numbers, so we can give people definitive answers. When we have 200 meta-analyses, we were really hoping this wasn't the case, but this is definitive now. We know that if you're overweight or obese, you're at higher likelihood of getting cancer. And that includes meningioma, esophageal cancer, uh, multiple myeloma, kidney cancer, uterine cancer, ovarian cancer, thyroid cancer, breast cancer, liver cancer, gallbladder cancer, stomach cancer, pancreas cancer, and colorectal cancer. And unfortunately, obesity doesn't just increase the risk of developing cancer, but also from dying from cancer. And 55% of cancers diagnosed in women are associated with obesity and about 25% men. So we wanna be looking at um, dietary patterns that limit that weight drift. So you, what we know is that, you know, the average um, person in this country after the age of 20 gains about a pound a year without making any changes. And if you, if you stop and you think about that, it sounds about right. So um, by the time you hit 30, maybe you're 10 pounds overweight, uh, then you hit 40 and you're 20 pounds overweight, and that continues to go up. Um, so what we really need to be doing is looking at, um, well, what can we tell people so that they don't have this weight drift? And um, we have randomized controlled trials that have demonstrated that vegetarian diets um, are the most helpful with that. Um, but a lot of my patients, you know, they'll come in and they'll say, well, I've, I've really been doing the right thing. I'm just eating a lot more chicken and I'm trying to cut out some of the processed foods. And, and I would say that the average American would, would say that that's what they're trying to do. And interestingly, I, I put this study in here because I think that 
it doesn't get the attention it deserves. Um, there was a trial called the Epic Panacea Study, and um, they looked at 373,000 people across Europe over a five-year period. And initially what they did was they, they said, okay, we're gonna control for calories and exercise and some other factors, meaning that everybody is eating the same amount of calories and exercising about them the same amount so it doesn't impact the outcome. And we're, gonna, we're going to um, see if meat eaters eat, um, gain more weight than vegetarians. And they found that indeed, if you ate meat and it's the same amount of calories over a four year period of time, you gained more weight. And that wasn't a real surprise. Um, we knew that. Um, the real surprise that got doctors sort of sitting up straight was that what they did after that was they said, okay, well, let's just take this group of meat eaters and let's look at which meat causes the most weight gain. And they found that the strongest association was with poultry, the very meat that most people in this country are switching to, to try and lose weight. So, and this is with Europeans who eat much less, um, you know, meat products than we do in this country. So, um, you know, you talk to somebody that's really trying to um, reduce their weight and they might tell you that they're eating, you know, two or three breasts of chicken a day, where in this study, the average European might be eating two or three a week. And so there was more weight gain with poultry compared to even processed meats, red meat and fish. And when we look at dietary patterns in general, you can see that for each group of people um, that take out various animal products, that um, body mass index tends to follow that. So um, the, the standard American tends to be the heaviest uh, people that are taking out all of the animal products all the way down to the vegan, you know, tends to weigh the least amount. Um, and in fact, even vegetarians at this point are really border, borderline overweight, whereas vegans tend to be uh, the ones who are still maintaining a normal body mass index. We can look at various cancers. So I talk a lot about breast cancer. So I wanted to bring in prostate cancer. Prostate cancer is the second leading cause of cancer death in men. And there is a clear link to saturated fat, dairy, and red meat. And in fact, if men who consume two servings of dairy a day increase their risk of prostate cancer by 60%. And um, this is due to that IGF-1, the insulin light growth factor one. So dairy is particularly harmful. So I, when I talk to my patients and I say chicken and cheese are the worst foods, um, when, you, when you look at dairy, dairy is not just bringing in hormones, it's not just bringing in animal protein, which triggers your body to make IGF-1, but it's also bringing in its own IGF-1. So it's the trifecta. And, um, and it's clearly linked, not just to breast cancer, but to prostate cancer. We, we've known for many years that um, red meat, beef, pork, lunch meat, sausage are linked to uh, prostate cancer because of the saturated fat and cholesterol. Um, and the links to the heterocyclic amine, the heme iron, and the nitrosamines. Um, just, uh, just recently, we had a huge study come out looking at men who have prostate cancer who completed their therapy. And what they did was they took those men and they took half of them and they put them on a plant-based diet. And they took the other half and said, continue doing what you're doing. And the men who were put on the plant-based diet had a greater than 50% reduced risk of recurrence and progression after their treatment. 
And that's huge. Um, we put, uh, you know, we find any, any pill that would reduce risk of recurrence and progression um, from cancer. I mean, we would spend any amount of money and we would tolerate almost any amount of side effects. And really all they did was, was uh, put men on a plant-based diet, which has no side effects other than making them healthier. So this is really remarkable. Um, we have known, again, um, we have lots of studies that have demonstrated that dairy decreases survival with prostate cancer. And in this study, they talked about three servings a day. Now, when we look at how easy it is to get a serving of dairy, you know, one ounce of cheese, one of those little blocks of cheese that you might see on a party platter is a serving of, of cheese. The average slice of pizza might have three um, three ounces of cheese or three servings. And then you add in milk, butter, yogurt. Um, most men are getting much more than three servings a day. And we know that this reduces their survival. Now, um, we can also reverse prostate cancer. And what we do with men um, is if they have an early stage prostate cancer, we sit down with them and we, and we say, listen, you know, cancer treatment's really toxic. Um, we can move forward with cancer treatment, but we may leave you with some really terrible um, side effects, which will impact your quality of life. So for example, erectile dysfunction or incontinence or inflammation of the rectum, which leads to a lot of mucus production, and that can be um, upsetting. And so what we do with these men is we say, well, we don't think your cancer is bad enough to really warrant treatment and all the side effects of treatment. So we're gonna put you in what we call watchful waiting, where we're gonna monitor you. And if we think that your cancer is starting to grow faster or getting worse, then we'll treat you. And so, um, what they did in this study was they took men um, who were in this, who were, you know, being watched for their prostate cancer, and they took half of them and put them on a vegan diet. And the other half, they said, well, continue living your, your healthy lifestyle. And um, the vegan group actually dropped their PSA and didn't have to go on for treatment. Whereas the control group, the group that continued just eating the way they were eating had the um, expected progression of PSA. PSA is the, um, the cancer marker for prostate, for prostate that continued to increase. And, um, and those men oftentimes had to go on to get their, their treatment. Um, you know, personally, I have seen um, patients who have declined and, you know, prostate cancer treatment with very high PSAs even, and dropped it down to normal. Um, we never, you know, if they're high risk, we would never recommend that they don't pursue treatment, but sometimes patients, you know, make those decisions on their own. And it's remarkable to watch if they're willing to make those changes, what can happen with that PSA. And it's always um, a little alarming in the cancer community because we don't see that very often, but, um, but there is a lot of control uh, that the individual has. So it's not just that um, animal products are harmful, but plant foods are very protective. You know, phytochemicals have been found to inactivate the carcinogens, help the body repair DNA when it's injured. We can't avoid all the injuries, but we want an immune system 
um, to really be able to help us make those repairs. Uh, phytochemicals are antioxidants. Um, it helps produce an environment in the body that's um, associated with the least amount of inflammation. Um, phytochemicals have been found to inhibit cancer spread and modulate receptors. So for example, um, soy, um, we have multiple human studies now that have demonstrated that um, the more soy you eat after a diagnosis of breast cancer, the less, um, you know, it reduces your risk of recurrence and death from early stage breast cancer. And that's because um, it can bind to receptors and act as a weak estrogen rather than our body's strong estrogen. And it's quite protective. Um, and, and that's important to know. I have most of my patients come in and say, oh no, I stopped eating all soy because um, I heard that, that, that that's harmful. And um, it, it indeed apparently is harmful in rats, but in humans, it's been found over and over to reduce risk of recurrence and death for breast cancer. Um, soy foods have actually also been found to reduce blood vessel growth into cancer. Um, when, when you're eating plant foods, you only, um, that's where you get fiber. So you don't get fiber from animal-based products. And that helps pull water into the intestines, dilute out the carcinogens. It can bind with bile acids and, um, and you know, help protect the colon. It binds estrogen uh, from, from being reabsorbed and pulls it out. And it's also been found to lower cholesterol, which is protective and blood sugar which is protective and helps the immune system fight off some of these, um, these insults that can lead to cancer. So doctors promote whole food plant-based diet for many reasons, um, lowers risks of, risk of cancer and uh, slows the progression of cancer. It lowers cholesterol, blood pressure, blood sugar. It reverses and prevents heart disease. It lowers um, the risk and can reverse diabetes. It helps maintain a healthy weight and helps people live a longer life without disease, which should be all of our goal. And these are some resources that I offer my patients. Um, so I'm gonna see if um, I can stop sharing my screen. I don't know if there are any questions. Yeah, you know what? I can stop sharing for okay. you. It's amazing. Let me just press this button. There we go. There you are. That was that the same presentation you gave in Seattle? It was. It was. Just it just seemed even more comprehensive today. I don't know why. Well, well, thank you. Um, but are there any questions I might be able to answer? Absolutely. Let me check the chat. I was watching. Guys, if you have questions, put four question marks uh, before your question in the show note. But my question is, why doesn't every oncologist know this? <laughs> well, um, I've given that a lot of thought. And I can tell you that um, that it has changed dramatically over the, the last 10 years. So when I first came out and started um, studying a little bit about nutrition, all I would tell my patients actually initially was just take out the processed foods, really focus on whole foods. And even at that time, um, there was a lot of pushback just from that, that recommendation. And um, 
you know, there, the thought was, well, you're telling patients that they, you know, they're already under a lot of stress and you're asking them to buy more expensive food. And, you know, you know th this is, um, this isn't what we're really supposed to do. Um, leave this to the nutritionists. Um, I, I think that, um, that it, there's a lot of information out there on exactly, you know, how to treat patients. And that sometimes um, becomes the focus more so than nutrition. You have to really take a, um, a separate interest in nutrition to even, um, you know, embrace it. In fact, I've, I've had doctors say, well, I know that there's a lot of good information out there, but I just don't have the time to learn it. So, but I can tell you that my patients come in now. And when I, when I did talk to them about going plant-based 10 years ago, it was a huge surprise. And I got a lot of side looks and now actually I'll hear, oh yes, my cardiologist is saying the same thing, or I have family members that are vegan. I'm going to um, ask them some questions. It's become much easier to talk to people about going plant-based. Are you the only vegan or plant-based radiation oncologist on the planet? <laughs> no, um, I, in fact, uh, even at VegFest, we had um, a medical oncologist that was there um, who was giving a presentation just on going plant-based and prostate cancer for the medical um, seminar in the evening. Um, but there, there are a lot of radiation oncologists. One of my partners is uh, vegan. Um, I don't know that he talks to patients about it a lot though, um, but a lot of doctors I think need to make that change themselves before they feel comfortable um, answering those kind of questions. And I can say that, that oftentimes when I'm talking to doctors, they're worried about the kind of questions they're gonna get, that they might not be able to answer it. And then that would impact the relationship they have with the patient. So they try and shut it down quickly and send them either to me or to a nutritionist. So, um, so I think that sometimes it's just a little bit of lack of knowledge and um, inability to spend time uh, looking at it. But the medical oncologists in our community, most of them uh, understand the benefits of going plant-based. I don't think that translates all the time to them telling our patients, but, um, but you know, behind closed doors, they, they definitely agree. Well, well, but what I don't understand is, okay, not everybody is going to tell their patients to be vegan and not every doctor is going to do it. But if you know what you know about red meat or grilled meats or, you know, processed meats being a class one carcinogen, why would they not even tell that? You tell your patients not to smoke, I'm guessing, if they smoke, if they come in with cancer, right? You'd be, you'd be surprised at how often I'm the first doctor that tells them uh, not to smoke. You mean there are people that think it actually is good? <laughs> No, the, I think I think in general, a lot of doctors think that that um, that the patient already knows that, and that by bringing it to their attention, that that um, they're going to damage the relationship because they're going to make the patient feel guilty that they caused this themselves. So I think that there's a little bit of fear associated with it, as 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 ridiculous as that is. But I think that there's uh, that that's in part to blame. That's, yeah. I, that, that, that is really, really hard to believe. You know, and it's interesting because you I've heard this from Chris Wark about how obesity is like linked to so many cancers. And 
why is that? What is it about when people have excess weight? Is it what what does what's the mechanism by which that can also make one more susceptible to cancer and a variety of cancers, right? Right. So, well, 13, the 13 that I, I listed there, in fact, um, even more. Um, well, so our fat um, is actually very metabolically active and it produces um, all sorts of chemicals that can increase inflammation. Um, also, when it comes to specific cancers like breast cancer, our fat gets converted to estrogen and um, can increase the amount of estrogen um, you know, in the body that can lead to, for example, breast cancer and um, uterine cancer. Um, so um, it's, it, I think it's multifactorial. But so a, a lot doctor, of inflammation. Yeah, uh -huh. If a doctor is worried about even telling a patient they shouldn't smoke, how are they going to even tell them to, that they should lose weight? Well, I mean, that's becoming a big problem too. I, I don't think doctors are telling patients to lose weight anymore. Um, you know, there's been a big shift in society that we don't want to body shame. And, um, and I think that in the medical, in the medical world, a lot of doctors are under new pressure. So if they've been hired by a hospital system, for example, um, uh, they get evaluated by patients. And if, if they tell a patient that they're overweight, then oftentimes the very first thing that happens is the patient gets angry. And then that comes out in their um, evaluations and the hospitals use that. And they, I mean, that can impact, it's, it's terrible, but I, there, there are a lot of factors that go into this. I, um, I mean, I know that, that doctors really you know, want each individual to do as well as they can. Um, but I think that there are some issues associated that's sort of global global issues in the healthcare world and in the social world. I mean, it's really everybody's, it's all about, you know, take pride in the body you have. And, um, and that's great. We don't want people to feel bad for them, you know, about themselves, but um, it's definitely a health metric that um, that's become politically incorrect to talk about. I mean, this is crazy. There's gotta be a happy medium where you can give information to a patient that they need, like they shouldn't smoke and that losing weight could help them without getting a bad review or shaming them. There's gotta be some way to fix this. I sure, I sure hope we can find it. I, I'm hoping that the pendulum is just about to uh, finish swinging in one direction and it'll come back. That's my, my only What about hope. a little pamphlet? What, because then it's not like you're saying you need to lose weight. Like, but what about a little pamphlet, you know? Um, you know, I mean, I think, you know, when it comes to obesity, believe it or not, um, 50, we're at, we're at like a 70% of our population is overweight and only 30% of our population that is overweight thinks they're overweight. So most people don't even actually acknowledge that they're overweight, which makes sense since um, the, you know, the normal is being overweight. It's really abnormal now in general to be normal weight. And so when you see everybody else a little bit bigger, um, you're not even recognizing it. Um, but again, you know, think about the fact that 75% of Americans think they're healthy. And you know where we stand. So, you, I have pamphlets. Um, we, you can have body mass index charts, but uh, people ignore it. We can compartmentalize and and um, 
you know, deal with the immediate stressors that we're all dealing with in life, work, kids, other things, um, and, and sort of look away from some of these health metrics. You talked about overweight. Elizabeth, who's watching live, says, what about underweight? Does that affect a person's risk or ability to uh, overcome it? Is that a factor in any way? Yeah, you know, being underweight comes with its own problems. It's really not an issue in the United States. I mean, it's very, it's pretty rare. Um, but, you know, definitely can be problematic. I mean, uh, that'll impact your immune system as well. And, um, you know, if you're going into um, a surgery, for example, you may not be able to heal as well. Um, there are certain cancers that we treat where we we really try and make sure people aren't losing weight because the idea is that you know the collateral damage from let's say the radiation um, needs to be addressed by the body and if you're losing a lot of weight or you're very underweight your body is diverting its resources to your brain and your heart instead of cleaning up the damage or even really optimizing your immune system so yes being underweight is is also um, a problem yeah, and sometimes cancer treatment causes people to lose weight. You know, I, not not as much as you'd think. It's not the battle days of cancer treatment. Uh, the average breast cancer patient who goes through chemo actually comes out 20 pounds heavier. So we, we now have excellent medications to combat nausea. They get a lot of steroids. Um, there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of um, care to, um, you know, treat the side effects of the therapy. So actually it's not like it used to be where people got cancer and all of a sudden they lost 50 pounds. I mean, there, you still see it on occasion, but it's much more rare. Interesting. Here's a question from a live viewer named, I, they don't have their name on it. Can sarcoma and other cancers not linked to diet be links? Also the metastasis of sarcoma. Yeah, sarcoma is a pretty rare, um, a rare cancer, and um, we don't really consider that that cancer associated with nutrition um, as much. Um, of course, I would say that um, you know anything you can do to reduce, um, you know, to to improve your immune system, to you know be able to handle the um, therapies is going to be beneficial. But um, when it comes to sarcomas uh, specifically, uh, we don't have a lot of data on whether or not there's any like, you know, benefit from nutrition. Thank you. And I think I see another question here. You, Christina says, you mentioned cooked foods regarding fish and chicken. Would the same occurrence happen if eating a small amount of raw fish? The IGF protein is still probably influenced through this pathway. Yeah. So I get, I get questions like this a lot. So, um, so I typically get either the raw, raw food question, or, um, you know, what if I hunt and I get my meat that way, you know, is that bypassing a lot of the toxins that bioaccumulate in the fat? So to address, to address the fish, um, you're not going to get the heterocyclic amines and the polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, but you are going to get 
all the persistent organic pollutants like dioxins, mercury, lead, PCBs, DDT. You're also going to still be exposing your body to an animal protein, which increases that insulin-like growth factor one, and it does bring in the dietary cholesterol. So it's still overwhelmingly um, harmful. And then that goes for the what a lot of my patients will ask about, you know, well, what about clean meats, organic meat, or uh, meat that's been, um, you know, killed, killed in the wild. So it's not eating the, um, you know, the heavily um, pesticide grains, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah, yes, maybe it doesn't have as much of those chemicals, it's still gonna still gonna have quite a bit of chemicals, because you can't, um, you can't avoid those chemicals in the environment, but then you're also still exposing yourself to the animal protein, even if it's organic, you're still, um, getting the dietary cholesterol, the saturated fat, the heme iron, and then you're still cooking those animals, you know, so, um, so it's still overall harmful. Yeah. Well, I know that your husband's a veterinarian and he works a lot with wildlife. When he comes on the show, he can tell people what these animals really eat. In nature, and it's not always so clean. No, it's <laughs> if they can get a hold of a McDonald's French fry. Oftentimes, they will. Yeah. That's impacting their health too, by the way. Do you? Where do you give this presentation? Because now I'm so glad it'll stay on YouTube, and we, we can refer people to it. But it seems like you should be giving this at like every medical conference and hospital all across the world. I'm sometimes uh, invited on, um, you know, plant pods to talk, and then Veg Fest. Uh, but uh, there's so many things to talk about in terms of cancer that a lot of the medical, uh, you know, groups are not interested in necessarily focusing on that. There's always new medications coming out, new standards of care, um, you know, discoveries that I think, um, I think that nutrition is just put on the back burner. And it's and it's sad because I'm I'm actually very concerned about um, you know what I hear in the media. I'm always hearing about preventing cancer, and when I listen to doctors talk, oftentimes the very first thing they say is, "Well, get your mammogram or get your colonoscopy." And I agree, go ahead, go get your mammogram and your colonoscopy. But that's not prevention; that's early detection. Yes, prevention. That <laughs> yeah. is such a wonderful point you're making. Prevention's what you do every single day. And, you know, you really need good sleep. You need excellent exercise. You need to be plant-based and, you know, do what you can to reduce stress in, in your life. And that's hard. That's hard for a lot of people, for, for most people. Yeah. Uh, Dawn would like to know where you practice and do people ever seek you out because you're plant-based or you just kind of, they get assigned to you? Um, so um, I'm, I'm in Tacoma, Washington, uh, which is um, a city south of Seattle. And, um, you know, when it comes to cancer, you usually just get referrals from, you know, either the surgeons or the medical oncologists, because I'm really a tertiary sort of specialist. Um, you know, I, um, I get people coming to me specifically for various techniques and radiation that I utilize, but not typically because of the discussion in um, nutrition. Although, um, if a patient does come in and is asking, you know, some of the other providers a lot of questions about nutrition, they'll they'll usually say, "Wait, wait until you go see Dr. Pitya. She'll talk to you about that." 
So and I'm always grateful when they do say that. I rather them know that somebody is going to talk to them about it. Um, sometimes I'll even have patients say, I haven't asked another doctor any questions about nutrition because I'm scared um, that, you know, they'll, I'm, I'm scared to ask them questions about it. I don't want them thinking that, you know, I'm alternative, something along those lines. Well, I don't know if this was true, but I heard in a book that I'm reading now that doctors can get sued if they mention alternative treatment and not the standard of care. Well, um, I don't think that they could make a case to sue you for talking about alternative care, but you can definitely be sued for not offering standard of care. And um, so, you know, a patient comes to me and, um, and I'm talking to them about, let's say, what we call endocrine therapy, the, the hormone treatment, anti-hormone treatment we give breast cancer patients. And I, I talk to them about that and I talk to them about nutrition. And the very first question they'll ask is, well, if I, if I become vegan, can I not take that medication? Right. Because, and you know, um, we don't have, we don't have the data that demonstrates, um, that that's equivalent. So I can't say sure, you know, go ahead and do that. But if let's say that patient, you know, decides to, um, omit the endocrine therapy, they get their cancer back, they have a tremendous amount of regret about not taking that medication, then they could come back and say, well, I was told I didn't need to take this. And I'd be in a very different position right now had I taken it. And then that would be the platform to um, sue the doctor. So most, most doctors, I think, are very good about saying, well, this is the standard of care. And if you're going to do an alternative, it's complimentary. It's, it's not necessarily in place of, um, but um, we do have doctors that um, when a patient is adamant that they do not want the, you know, standard of care for, you know, that allopathic medicine has to offer, we send them off to, um, you know, um, like naturopathic um, oncologists. And I actually work with one here in this area and I love, I love working with him. He, um, you know, he focuses on nutrition, but he also works with a medical oncologist. And so they actually can get a lot of, a lot of people to do both. And, uh, but it, it really right now um, is really very much considered complimentary. And I think we're getting a lot better about that. When I first started out, somebody asked about acupuncture you know, nobody would know what to say. And now we all have, you know, a group of acupuncturists in our back pocket. Right. Well, we're actually going to have a naturopathic oncologist from the Mayo Clinic who's vegan and a cancer survivor and a heart transplant survivor <sighs> next month. She is fabulous. Her name is Dr. Dawn Muscle, and you might want to connect with her. She's just lovely. Oh, I'll, I'll be looking forward to listening. To that. Absolutely. Uh, Dawn wants to know, can some blood pressure medications cause cancer? I Googled it and it said it, there are some skin cancers linked to it, but I don't know for sure. Well, we're very worried right now about, um, you know, some of the ingredients in various medications that are known to cause cancer. So I, I mean, over the last five years, um, we've had multiple medications, particularly the blood pressure medications pulled for periods of time. So, um, so yes, it's possible. I mean, I, I think we should all be trying to live a life with this, uh, without medications if possible. I think that there are a lot of, um, a lot of 
substances in there that are that are carcinogenic that's getting into the um, routine consumption of the you know American population. Yeah. Uh, Jocelyn is starting radiation treatment next week and wants to know if whole food plant-based is the best way to eat during radiation treatment. It's the best way to eat before, during, and after. Absolutely. Um, without question and during chemotherapy. And it's even been shown to help, um, you know, recover chemo brain. So um, I, I 100%, I encourage all of my patients to go plant-based while, um, you know, well, they have access to me to answer questions, but, um, but definitely during their radiation. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, have you heard of water fasting? I sure have. Because I know that uh, Dr. Goldhammer is coming out with a new book next year about that. He's the founder of the True North Health Center. And I've heard even Dr. Walter Longo at USC talked about how fasting can help people through chemo. Would it be the same for radiation? Uh, possibly. Um, and, and absolutely. Fasting is probably very beneficial. It is not what's being promoted by um, the, the chemo clinics for sure. Um, but there's some very good data on that out there. Um, you know, I don't think for radiation, it's probably as necessary. Um, radiation, um, what radiation does is um, it uh, when, when we deliver the radiation, we are actually trying to impact the DNA of cancer cells. So it's a, so normal cells have a toolbox um, and cancer cells don't have a toolbox. And so we get a differential effect um, <clears throat> when we're treating somebody based on this. So if you have, um, if you have a cancer cell that's left behind and you're giving some radiation, the idea is the radiation is going to impact the DNA of that cancer cell and that cancer cell can't repair itself. Whereas the normal cells around it will repair itself. So you hit that cell enough and it's going to die off and you're going to get side effects from the radiation, but the normal cells have that toolbox to fix it. And so it's that um, difference between cancer cells and normal cells that uh, both chemotherapy and radiation hopes to exploit. Um, radiation is just a little bit more direct with that. So, um, so no, um, I don't think that the fasting uh, specifically for that, although I think there are lots of great health benefits for fasting. Right. I'd love to go to True North. Well, come on. I'm, I'm, I'm going in September. Go when I'm going. We can oh, I'd love to go. <laughs> oh my God. It'd be so much fun to have you there. Wow. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I'd love to, I, I, if I didn't have another show in like nine minutes, I'd love to keep talking to you because I know you have a family that eats this way. And I'd love to know more about your story. So maybe you can come back either when your husband comes or at a different time, just so we can get to know you a little bit better. <laughs> Anytime. I, I would be honored. Thank you. Well, now that we figured out the tech and I finally figured out who I think you look like Molly Ringwald. Oh, I've, yes. I've been hearing that since I was a kid. Okay, good. So I'm not just making that up because no. when I first met you, I said Carol Burnett and I'm like, no, it's not Carol Burnett. So okay, <laughs> so I'm not making that up. That's fantastic. Well, you are just a delight and thank you for the work you do in educating your patients when you can about the benefits of this, even if they reach you at a time where maybe they don't want to hear it, but you never know. You open a door. It's true. We all do the best we can. So Appreciate, appreciate you having me on today. Thank you so much. I yeah. really, really. Yeah, it, it was so nice uh, to meet you in Washington. Thanks to Jyothi who said, you got to meet this lady. She's fantastic. And she is. And I hope you'll be able to give this talk far and wide. <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you, Dr. Pitier. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. Please come back in five minutes for vegan conversations with Robert Cheek. And today's topic is unlocking your health potential, gut wisdom, and naturopathy with Christian Limoges. Take care, everybody, and hope to see you in five minutes. Bye-bye.